Hey everybody, this is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. For over 30 years at Bigelow, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned successful private business owners and working closely with actually hundreds of them. So in this podcast, I interview some of the most high-performing successful entrepreneur owner managers from both the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors to learn from their experiences. We're looking for the breadcrumbs in the forest that they may have dropped behind, or we're also relying on them to be candid with us and telling us about some of the things that they uh, wish they hadn't done or that did, were there, impeded them on the way. Today, my guests are Don Oaks and Fran Phillip, who came to be entrepreneurs in the second chapter of their professional lives. Both Don and Fran were very successful executives, senior executives with L.L. Bean. Fran ultimately is the chief merchant, uh, chief merchandising officer, and Don is working in senior positions in creative and brand. Uh, Fran has a great deal of professional governance experience, uh, not only with private companies where she's very active, but also with public companies with firms including Vista Outdoors, Vera Bradley, and PacSun. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, they departed L.L. Bean for different reasons, and uh, you'll hear them talk about the story about how Fran called Don one day and said, I've got this interesting business I think we could uh, make an investment in or maybe even acquire most of, and we could run it, and it's called Maine Sea Bags. And I think Don probably uh, heard that discussion with a teensy bit of professional skepticism after being a senior executive of a more than a billion-dollar company and said, well, Fran, how many stores do they have at Seabags? And she said, three. And he said, what do they do? And she said, they make tote bags out of used sails from sailboats. Now, here's a guy, as a senior executive, you probably know, L.L. Bean has the most iconic tote bag in the world. So I'm not sure what he thought about that. But what we'll hear today with Don and Fran is an unusual professional partnership where uh, they got a second act as entrepreneur owner managers from professionally managing a large, mature, family-controlled enterprise to a small, early-stage, very chaotic enterprise. The question, you know, I guess I had was, could they apply their experience, their professionally honed skills learned, um, you know, from an Ivy League uh, education and in a long career already to a small, struggling startup company that makes tote bags out of used sales? What? From selling the most recognizable tote bags in the world to creating a whole new brand. So I think what you're going to hear, we have a, like a, a double barrel uh, positive uh, interview today because we'll hear Don and Fran talk about their individual experiences, some of their insights and uh, ideas that they shared with each other, uh, some of the ways that they um, work uh, in different seasons of the year, believe it or not, and some of their hopes and dreams for Seabags. Seabags now, by the way, is a very widely known consumer brand in more than just bags, and it has, uh, I think probably as of this recording, 50 stores, 50 retail stores, in addition to a uh, very robust online presence. So listen and learn. I hope you enjoy uh, listening to Don and Fran. I sure enjoyed having them on the podcast. So, so the two of you, um, when you came to Seabags, um, it was one thing, and now it's something vastly different. And one of the things I was scratching my head about was 
because the two of you knew each other and worked together previously, what were you trying to have people, what was the emotion that you were trying to create in people? What was the feeling you were trying to create in people when they heard the brand Seabags? Um, well, I'll start and you chime in. Um, well, I kind of go back to, as we were talking earlier about um, the slides that we put together, which was really the, the presentation of our business plan and how we articulated it, is um, one of the things we talked about was the things that we liked about the brand. And we boiled it down into this notion of the brand DNA and these overarching trends that we really um, fit, fit well into. And one was the fact that it was handmade. And there was, you know, there's always an affinity for things that are handmade and handcrafted. Yes. And the fact that it was made, not just handmade, but it was made in Maine. And we'd like to say, you know, not just in Maine, but in Portland on the working waterfront. And, of course, that whole made in the USA cachet. And that it had a nautical feel to it, right? So it had that sensibility, that nautical lifestyle, the coastal lifestyle. And then, and then the lastly, that it was a sustainable product. It was made out of recycled, right? And it was even, as some people refer to as upcycled. So those four things were just things that we felt that people could connect to and that we connected to. And we weren't convinced necessarily that everybody's going to connect to all four things, but we felt that people, and particularly customers, would connect to one or more of those things. One of the things that probably was somewhat surprising to me and, and how that shifted somewhat over the years is it's the employees as well. It's our staff that connects to those things. And that has enabled us to attract people and retain people because of, you know, it, it gets thrown around, I think, loosely a lot of times about companies that say they're mission-driven. But we are mission and purpose-driven, and that's part of what attracts both our customers and, and our employees. And I would double-click on the handcrafted aspect because they're also, each one is unique. So even yeah. if you and I buy the same classic tote bag with our iconic navy blue anchor, because it's cut out of a different piece of sail, from a different part of the sail, from a different sailboat, our two bags will be slightly different. They will have some of the original stitching from the seam of the sail, or some piece of hardware from the sail, and so no two bags ever are exactly alike. Mm. And I think the customer loves that yeah. because not only is it not mass-produced, but seemingly identical bags are actually unique. And, and unique in the correct sense of the word. There is no other like that one. And I think people love that they're yeah. buying yeah. and owning something or gifting something that doesn't have a match anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you both described something interesting that um, I don't always see in businesses, which is uh, that your strategy that what you're thinking about in terms of that brand DNA actually is also your culture mm -hmm. that your team that you spoke to identifies with that yeah. so actually the strategy and the culture are kind of the same very intertwined yeah. absolutely quite it's quite interesting yeah. and when don says you know it was kind of surprised us that the employees embrace this as much as anybody else yeah. i mean they're so proud to work for Seabags for all those points that don just Iterated, but so do our, our vendors love that. Mm -hmm. When we're working with a new vendor and they find out who we are, they're so excited to be doing business with us because of those four 
elements of our DNA. I think our landlords respond to it in a positive way. It's it just the whole circle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would add investors into that. Oh yes. So. You know, if you went through the roster of investors and said, okay, what was it that this person invested for? And some invested because of the people angle and some because of the recycle story, some because of handmade. So investors had their own reasons. Or, um, or all of the four. I mean, right. some, for some, the sustainability is right. really, yeah. really like important. Some is because they're lifelong sailors and they just get the coastal, exactly. yeah. coastal vibe. Yeah. Well, so... Um, Fran, is this thought what you thought you were going to be doing when you were a kid? <laughs> In some ways, yes. I mean, I like to say I was probably the only six-year-old that merchandised my lemonade stand with, <laughs> and did line extensions into other products. <laughs> right? So, yes. right. I think I've been a merchant since I was born. My mother says a in my little baby book, the first book I read and loved to read was the Sears Roebuck catalog. So, wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, so, some, in some ways, yes. Um, I'm a, I am a lifelong sailor. It's a passion for me. So did I know I would end up involved with this company? No, but it's such a perfect match to my my merchant, my innate merchant, and my love for sailing. And, Don, if you were to use a couple of nouns to describe yourself and what you do today in life, what would they be? Hmm. Life? <laughs> Personally yeah, or professionally? Yeah. Um, i probably start with father, and I'd start next with husband, and then I would say leader is, is kind of how I think of those roles. Yeah. And the two of you um, have a background as, and already were successful in a prior chapter as what I would call professional managers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you joined the dark side and became entrepreneur, owner, managers. How has that changed how you think about your world? Yeah, yeah. well, it's probably not that simple because I think Fran had a different, for different background. Okay, so, great. Yeah, why don't let's, you talk first talk about that? So, you had some entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, yeah. Had, I, I started a company with two other women in San Francisco in the 80s from, you know, just from the ground up. I mean, writing a business plan on a kitchen table, raising money from friends and family, that whole thing. And what was that about? What was the business? It was pre, you got to think pre-internet here. So yeah. this was, um, and it still exists, Calix and Corolla. It was the uh, direct oh, yes. mail flower yeah. business where we were using really the technology of FedEx to connect growers in all parts of the world who grew a particular type of flower and then sell that flower and ship it directly to the end consumer. So talk about supply chain. We were actually skipping about four or five levels of the floral supply chain, which typically goes from grower to wholesaler to broker to local flower market in Boston and then to a flower shop near you. Right. So um, that was that entrepreneurial venture. And I did that for seven years. And then within L.L. Bean, I did two internal startups. Not quite the same because you have a big parent backing you. But still, it was writing a business plan, convincing the board to invest in the idea, and then actually you know, hiring a team and, and launching it. Okay, so, great. So this is sort of my fourth time at it, and yeah. I love it. I guess it gets back to the lemonade stand. Yes, it does. I think I am an entrepreneur <laughs> by nature. That's great. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Don, how about you? So for me, I I too, you know, spent a lot of years at Bean. I had a I think a great twenty year career there. And I was able to thrive and survive there despite the fact that I was never a great fit. 
I, I was I was never a great fit because um, because I don't think a large organization that is conservative and slow moving fits with my style well. Um, but I managed to carve a place there and be in roles that allowed me some freedom and be very successful in those roles. Well, thank you. Um, and so I was always gravitating toward the more entrepreneurial opportunities within Bean. Um, so um, after uh, Fran had started Signature, for example, um, and uh, it was up and going, and um, they asked someone else to lead it, so you know I took that role on. There were other things that I could use as examples where they were little mini entrepreneurial things within the large the larger organization, and that always really interested me and energized me. And then if I I look back to the things that I have either attempted or done earlier in my life and career. Um, I recently was leading a, um, a planning session for a board that I'd been on for nine years, and I rotated off last year, and they invited me back to lead their annual planning session. Um, and we hadn't done it for three years, and the last time I led it. So this time as an outsider, I came in. And I pulled up some old files. The first business plan I wrote was when I was when I tried to buy a small business when I was a senior um, in high school. The next one was when I was a freshman in college. Wow! And a so and and life turns out funny ways, right? So no, I never expected I would be um, running a sea bags specifically. Um, I always felt like I'd be running a company or leading something. Um, and when I was in high school. I was working at the local hardware store, Lumberyard. By the time I was a senior, I was running it. Um, right before graduation, I had a deal to buy to buy it, to buy the business. <laughs> and I was going to – I was changing my enrollment in school. I was going to go part-time. And a month before graduation, the owner, an uh, elderly gentleman, passed away. And my life changed. All of a sudden, I didn't have a deal to, to buy the hardware store in Milo. And it really changed everything. Wow. Uh, but it didn't change the fact that – I, I, I felt like I wanted to um, lead something. I wanted to be an owner um, and, and be entrepreneurial because a bunch of the other business plans that I pulled out um, as I was prepping for the session were plans that I've written over the years and whether they were startups or acquisitions or internals, um, there's always been that itch and this is the first time that I've definitely been able to scratch it and uh, yeah, like Fran said, it's been a blast, and it's amazing that it's been over eight and a half years now since uh, uh, since we finalized the deal and, and uh, started running this. You know, you, it's a really unusual story, I think, for people who listen to this podcast are almost all business owners. And most of our friends who are business owners really, if I'm going to be really candid, uh, w- are not suited to be uh, managers in a larger organization. And mm-hmm. they typically don't succeed, mm-hmm. actually. And we have uh, more than one handful of our friends who are uh, business, very successful business owners who got fired from their position right, you know, right, somewhere right. big That's and went off and started, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, like, your story is really quite an unusual story. Yeah. It's quite amazing that you were able to, uh, I mean, these are my words, but in a way take some of the learning that you were able to get at Bean and continue to round out the the yeah. the temperament that you already had as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, and I think it's all about learning, and I love that. I always wanted that in every role, and and that was one of my early frustrations at being when I went into the first role. And uh, large organizations, maybe all of them, I don't know, but they have a tendency to pigeonhole you. 
So I was in XYZ role, and they were, well, Don's this. And then I went in a completely different role. And then, well, no, Don's, Don's an operational guy. Then Don's a staff guy. Oh, Don's in marketing. Don's this. It's like, don't pigeonhole, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some people have more limited range. I don't believe that. And so, yeah, I think if I look back, I was able to enjoy every role that I've had. I was able to learn in every role that I had and able to have some level of success. And and I think that's been the case at uh, at Seabags. You know, it's been constant learning, um, learning from the, the, the people that are there, but also drawing from our past experience. And the, one of the things that Fran and I have talked about over the years is it's almost like we didn't know how much we knew. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like some of the things like, well, how do we know that? Or how do we know to do that? It's it's not innate, yeah. but it's things that we've learned over time. We already have scar tissue. Natural. Exactly. Yeah. Right. From experience. Um, Don and Fran, could could you just tell us the origin story of Seabags and, and the two of you? And, and you talked about raising money and yeah. then the, writing the business plan. Could you just yeah. give us that origin That's story? That's a great story. Fran's going to start that I one. I am going to start that one. So we had been meeting at the Starbucks in Falmouth. Every month or so after we left, we left being at different times for different reasons, but we've always stayed in touch, and we always thought it would be fun to pool our resources and our combined 36 years of experience at L.L. Bean to help small main businesses. And so we had this working list of companies that kind of intrigued us and made, and CMAs was at or near the top. And I found out that um, one of my close friends was cousins of the current owner, uh, Beth. And so I said, would you make an introduction? And so I had lunch with Beth in the old port, and she started telling me about the business. And she was very taken with my background at being as chief merchant and, and, and all of that. And the more she told me about the business, the more I said, this sounds too good to be true. I mean, we can't make, en- we can't make enough. Um, you know, the margin, there's no return rate. I mean, all of these things. So I finished the lunch with Beth, had a quick tour, called Don up immediately and said, you got to meet this person and you got to hear more about this business. And um, I was so excited that night that I, I couldn't go to sleep. And so Don and I had dinner with her a week or two later, yep. and she was very interested in not just taking an investment, but perhaps selling the business, um, you know, mean, retaining some equity herself. But yep. And then she said, but um, I don't, you know, I, I need somebody to run the business because I think it's gotten too big for me. And I said, well, Don doesn't have anything to do. He can run it for you. And Don <laughs> was eating a piece of fish and spit it out because he didn't know I was going to say that. And so we had a tour, and that night, you know, uh, you drove back to Falmouth, I think I drove back up to the Sunday River, and I said, Don, you're not going to be able to sleep at night tonight. Trust me, because you'll have all this running through your head. I get a text from him at four in the morning. You're right. I can't sleep. <laughs> when can we talk about writing the business plan for this business? Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting winter. So um, part of the reason why I didn't show up for the first meeting was because um, it was ski season and I was skiing. Um, and it was a big deal for Fran to take a day off from, from skiing, but it was early in the ski season. We had just been introduced. Actually, the conversation happened at a Christmas party at, at Fran's house. Yeah, the initial right? one. Yeah. The first conversation where I was introduced to the idea and pre-introduction that uh, 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 Sean uh, made for us. And um, at my first reaction wasn't like, oh, this is this is the one. And at the time, you know, I was looking at, 
and had a number of things going on on the entrepreneurial side. Startups with some other colleagues, potential acquisitions. I, I kicked a few tires about taking a, a job, but one of the things that kind of back to your question about Bean and, and sort of why I didn't fit is um, I, I like to think of myself as a, as a good leader. I'm, I'm not the best follower. Um, and what I decided in that process when I did some interviewing was I, I don't want to work for anybody anymore. And, and that's probably one of the things that I do have in common with yes. many of your owner-managers yes. and entrepreneurs yeah. is the desire not to work for somebody. Yeah. Um, because um, my best bosses were the ones who let me be me and let me get great results. And if they want to take credit for it, fine. But um, um, you know, being being overly managed was 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 not my uh, you know was not my forte. So I had a number of things going. This was one of the things. And up until Fran called me and we started going through the numbers, and it was it we quickly went from being a potential investment where we would be relatively passive and give some of our expertise to, oh, we could acquire a majority. Oh, we could buy the whole thing, yeah. and then let's learn more about it. Oh. It, the product which we liked, the fact that it was multi-channel, the fact that it tapped into so much of our experience, whether in direct, through um, online and the website, through retail, which we have experience in, obviously the product experience that Fran had, it was the whole thing. And a manufacturer too, yeah. that we made our own product. So it quickly became the most exciting thing on the list. And as I was working with uh, someone to kind of help me sort through my own process, that was the one thing that as we talk about it that I would get more energetic about. Yeah. And he observed, he's like, and Ray Iglesias I was working with on the side at the yeah. time. Yeah. And he goes, Don, you're very thoughtful as you talk about these other things, but when you start talking about sea bags and when you start telling me about your conversations with Fran, your level of excitement goes up. You know, your voice pitch changes, your energy changes. He goes, do you think that's the one you're most interested in? I go, oh, that's a really interesting observation. And then we explored why. So it very quickly became number one on the list and everything else um, wound down pretty quickly. And that winter was great because um, uh, Fran and I spent at least four days, if not five days a week, um, working on the business plan, as we like to describe, on the chairlift at Sunday River, where we'd ski, we'd, we'd brainstorm ideas, and then after we'd break for lunch at her um, townhouse, and we'd sit, get out the laptop and start brainstorming putting ideas down on paper, and then we'd both go back to our respective places with our to-dos and work on the performers or the plans or the pitch deck. Or um, Because the other part, which you're going to follow up on, I'm sure, because you teed it up, is we quickly got to the conclusion that if we're going to buy this thing, then it's beyond what our capital resources are, so we're going to have to go out and raise money. That's a whole thing that... I hadn't done before. And right? I've, done it, I've done it once before. Yeah. So, and the list of friends and family, you know, might not be long enough for us. So that was going to be the next challenge. So how did you, when the two of you got started, maybe it was on the chairlift, but how did you think about being, uh, about role, R-O-L-E, role clarity? Because uh, whether you're talking with your team or, with, or what became your team, or whether you're talking about investors or advisors or whoever, people work best when they understand like oh, what between each... Between the two of us? Yeah. Yes. And, so, and, and how did you present that to the world? That was easy yeah. because you know we worked together at being a well-respected company and 
I was always a merchant and always in product design and merchandising. Don probably worked in every other functional area except merchandising. Right, right, yep. So we are a natural complement to yep. each other. And furthermore, Don wanted another full-time gig, not working for somebody else, but he wanted a full-time gig. I did not. I was already on four or five corporate boards yep. and busy enough with that. So I didn't want a full-time role, but I relished the opportunity to get my hands back on product yes. and to lead the product initiative at, at Seabags and oversee the design and product development. So that was a perfect spot yeah. for me. And I think it really resonated with the people that we made the pitch to. They're like, mm -hmm. oh... Don's, you know, all of this stuff, finance, operations, friends, you know, super creative and, and product-oriented and design-oriented, you know, they really are like the yin and the yang, and we've always worked well together, so it was an easy an easy role, clarity, and very understandable to the investors. Great. So that's where I was going to go. So that was understandable to the outside world, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Crystal yeah. clear. They're like, oh, we get it. Yeah. You guys work well together. You worked well for 16 years in a huge... Right well-known company, yeah. you bring very different skill sets, but you're very compatible, and this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't think there were a lot of questions about it. I, I think, and particularly because a lot of the investors ended up being people that were in Fran's circle that knew Fran and some that I knew um, with her, but um, the questions that we get are, well, what are you investing in the business? So, of course, we were the first two investors. Yes. And then the question is, so how much of your time? Yes. And, and Fran was very clear, and Don, you're going to be full-time. And I thought, naively at the time, this is a little company. There's 20 people here. i got other things to do. Um, I, I like having all this time to ski. Yeah, I can probably do this three days a week, and then I'll have all this other time. Um, a couple of years later, one of our uh, Observer board members, we were talking about Des earlier. I, I'm not sure if you know Des Fitzgerald, but uh, I don't, no. Des, Des um, we'd have coffee occasionally, and he was um, one of our observers from Main Venture Fund. And he would often remind me, he goes, Don, you seem like you're running a sprint. I'm, this is a marathon. You need to pace yourself. I said, I know, but there's so much to do, and it's only been two years, and then it's only been four years, and, and it still feels like that, but I think because it is so energizing, um, my point being, it's, it's not a three-day-a-week job. You know, it's a as all of your listeners know, and all of these start. It's a seven day a week. You never turn it off, but it's because it's you have the passion for it, and yeah. it's rewarding, and the need is there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the question, though. Back to your your initial question from some investors is, so are you just doing this? You know, some people wanted to know. Yeah. We have a full time CEO, even though because. You know, in hindsight, uh, you know, I really have learned to appreciate the fact that they were writing checks and giving us their money and trusting us with their money. I mean, that's a that's a huge compliment yes. and also responsibility, responsibility yes. right? And you and I have talked about yes. that. As I and, and you felt the responsibility, long, didn't you? Well, and, probably and, not initially as much. Uh, uh, not initially. Yeah. I think it was more the excitement. I was so convinced that you know this opportunity made sense and getting it, but. But after the fact, and well, now as time's gone on, I feel more and more the responsibility. Yeah. But and I, I was, you know, very clear that I was commit, you know, a day a week or something yeah. like that to it. Yeah. But, you know, I always say a merchant's on duty twenty four seven. A merchant has to have his or her antenna up. 24/7. So I'm never not thinking about the product line at Seabase. Right. Wherever I am, shopping in an airport, looking at what people are carrying, what are the trends, reading Women's Wear Daily, what's happening with color, what's happening with pattern. So, 
yes, I physically, if you were to clock my hours, put in kind of the equivalent of a day a week, but 24-7 my head's thinking about product because I can't stop. And I love that because I don't have to. And I can think about everything else because back again, you know, in our our bean days when there was a a small group of us, known as a group of five, and we would go out and do our shopping trips. That is not how I want to spend my time. But Fran loved it, and we all followed Fran. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that she's always looking at that and can look for the product, then I don't have to focus on that, and I can focus on every other aspect of the business. It's just very freeing. Um, and, and to Fran's earlier point, it's just a great compliment that the two of us have. So when you two talk to Beth, Yep. And then you began to write the plan on the chairlift and off the chairlift. And you began to probably pretty quickly talk to some investors. You got some feedback. Was Beth standing by, kind of um, waiting for you to raise the capital? She wasn't part of the pitch process. Right. Yeah. right. But, so right. She, but she was being patient with you? Yeah, when you yes. get. Yeah, so, so we had an initial LOI. Yeah. And then we had an agreed upon term sheet. Um, and then we had time that. We had to raise the capital. We had a couple. There were a few moments where we had to get extensions because it took longer. Yeah. Um, we had brought in a third partner, Fran and I, yeah. um, who had more experience in this realm. We went and made a bunch of pitches to. I, I'd say we made the rounds around Portland and Greater Portland to the the people you would typically meet with, who. Um, like to give us all of their years and years of wisdom and, and educate us on all the things we didn't know. And then. But did they write checks? No. Right. No. And they tried, they all tried to negotiate better terms and they all tried, yeah. not all of them, but many of them tried to negotiate better terms. And some of them went so far as to make suggestions that would fundamentally change everything we liked about the company. Yeah. Like, why don't you make it in China? Right. Why don't you sell to Walmart? I mean, all these things. The prices are too high. Right. Well, I never worked someplace where if you can't make enough to sell, that doesn't tell me that our prices are yeah. too high. Right, right. And, and some, some we walked away from because... Uh, of the like same them. reason... Right, the like same them. reason that I didn't want a boss is life is short and... I didn't want this person's money, right? And uh, because they were rude, they were impolite, uh, they were arrogant, arrogant. (laughs) and you know we're we're thinking of the same person. And we walked out of one meeting thinking like that was terrible, and this person was really rude, and uh, we didn't want the money. And then I got a phone call a couple weeks later from our attorney saying that they wanted to put a substantial amount of money, and I said no, no thanks. And he said, but Don, you are so far short, you you might not even get here. I said. We're going to get there one way or another, but if we have to get there with this person's money, and that's who I'm signing up for, and they would be on the board, then I, I guess it wasn't meant to be, and I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, so what a great experience that was. Even though yeah. I mean, isn't that so instructive to help you like get it, double down and clarity? Isn't it clarifying? It was clarifying, yeah. and we even said to each other, I mean, we would not take this person's money, and if we each have to take out a mortgage on our house to make up the yeah. shortfall, we will do that. Right. So yeah. right. Well, and to your point, on that point, rather, there was a time where we had to do that. So it did take longer. We went and made the rounds. We didn't get any checks. Any may be an overstatement, but we didn't get much. And we had a big nut to raise even after we put in the first amount. Um, And so then it really became, um, back to the friend's earlier point, the friends and family. Um, and, And the tipping point 
where things started to move was, was it your 30th or your 35th uh, HBS reunion? It was. Where I was on a conference call and Fran was at a breakfast with a bunch of her classmates and section mates um, who a number of them ended up yeah. investing. Well, yeah. they said, then, what, are, you know, what are you doing these days? And I yeah. said what I was doing. They said, well, we want to hear more about that. So I actually arranged a very informal pitch in between the various sessions that one has at your HBS Perfect. Yeah. And three of my section mates, yeah. and, and there, it was a small group, and three yeah. of them ended up investing. That's so. great. More. That's so, great. So that started it, and then some of those early meetings led to other meetings, led to other meetings, and sure. we finally got a few um, big investors, and then as we were trying to round out, we still needed more time, and we delayed a few times. We, we had three separate closings. The first closing got us mostly there. The second closing was uh, before the end of the year. That was one where um, we weren't quite there, but we didn't mortgage everything. But Fran and I did sign up for um, uh, filling in a gap that remained. Mm -hmm. And and that was because we were unlikely to get another extension or didn't feel like we were going to get another extension. Um, So... um, Fran was good enough to sign a piece of paper um, yep. that uh, we would commit to filling everything else. And then we worked, and I made a lot of calls and closed a number of deals in the next couple months, so we didn't have to put up yep. anything more. We had an opportunity. Good incentive. Do we did, but yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's skin in the game. It yeah, works, right? It absolutely. Right. So remind me, uh, when you two and your investors acquired, acquired the business, um, what was how many stores were there? Two. Yeah, there and was one 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 freestanding store in Freeport that had opened, and then there was a super highly productive two hundred square corner. foot area yeah. in front of the factory right. that was the original storefront uh, that functioned as a store. But in terms of there was that part of the factory, and then there was the one freestanding store. And uh, was and rem- and remind me r- roughly how many stores do you have now? We're at 46, I think, if I counted right this week. And when the two of you went into the business, was it the store expansion that you thought was the principal thing to do? Nope, nope. What we, was it? We actually felt, and and we ha- I have the old performa that we did, and that was in the summertime, so it was at Friends Kitchen Table in Freeport, um, and it shows the number of stores we would add per year, and it yep. shows the website growth and then the wholesale business. Uh, we actually felt that this was more of an internet play, and we thought that the website would be the dominant channel. Yep. Our plan was when we bought the company, the company was about one third um, direct, so between the two stores and the and the small online business, um, was about a third of the business, but it was two thirds wholesale. And we love the margins in direct so much we, more we than wholesale. So we knew from the beginning we wanted to flip that right. the other way. Yes. So we figured within five years we'd flip it to 60-40 the other way. It took yeah. us three years to flip it to 60-40. We figured that half of the business by year five to seven would be online. Um, probably another 30%, 35% would be retail, a third or so. And then the rest would be various wholesale and corporate sales. Um, where we stand now is we're 55% retail, um, so and we're about 30% um, uh, internet on e-commerce. So it's opposite, yeah. and and that was one of the bigger surprises as mm-hmm. we started to roll out retail. Um, what what I think we learned is those things we loved about the brand and what Fran said about the uniqueness and the story. Yeah, because we have such a great story. That's why. Portland is is such a huge part of who we are and our original factory and storefront. Um, that story is better told in person, 
and and so the retail model and the way that we did it because we started really slow uh, we kept our costs low so we made it so that we could scale profitably we found that that is the best introduction to the brand and then people will buy online but it's harder to acquire customers online for us um, because they don't understand the fact that oh this might be a stitch mark here or there might be a telltale there might be something else they think it's a defect and do you feel like you have proof of that now that you I don't know if you can test for this but you probably can that the customers who come online are actually repeat customers the best proof I have is um, where our first store that we opened, uh, I'll give two examples. The first store we opened was in Cape May, New Jersey. And, you know, the tip of, uh, I wow. think it's called Exit Zero. I'm surprised. Well, we, we, we're always about managing risk, right? And so <laughs> retail was a bit sketchy. I wasn't sure where we were going to open. Um, and one of the big things was who are we going to trust to oversee a store? And... Um, as we were thinking about it, we had tried one other test, which was a kiosk in the main mall on the holidays. It didn't work so well. So we had that experience. My son had just moved to Cape May. He had taken a job at the theater there after graduating from college. So I said, I was down visiting him, and I liked the town. Yeah. Um, I talked to a real estate broker and came back and talked to Fran and the board and said, well, you know, we want to try retail. Where are we going to try it? I go, well, I feel that I've got somebody who can watch over the store for me. You know, he was working 80 hours a week, you know, and very busy, <laughs> but he could, it was literally, a block away so he could keep an eye on it I could have him watch it make sure someone was making the bank deposits and we'd hire some staff down there I uh, think one thing we, we didn't understand in the original business plan getting back to the retail aspect of it is how much people want to touch the bag Yes. and so I have friends tell me and they know they can order online but they would ra- if they can they would rather go into a store yeah. because some sales feel stiff and some feel a little softer yes. and they want to look for that really cool stitching mark that's part of the original sale so I don't think we appreciated enough how tactile the product is and that it really is experiential retailing which is you know becoming a thing now but we really are that because the product each and every one as I started out at the beginning is unique so that does lend itself to a brick and mortar concept where you can go in Touch it, feel it. Right. So what we saw in that example is in Cape May, that that was the time where we'd get five or ten orders a day online, oh, yeah. and I could watch all the orders. And you know, up until a few years ago, I I looked at every order, um, and all of a sudden I started seeing these other names come up, Avalon, and all these communities around Cape May mm-hmm. that have never ordered before. So why are they ordering online or even up into Philly? So we sure. saw a little bump. Yeah. And that was kind of very anecdotal. But that sort of that continued for a few years until 2020. The when we Right. When we rolled out four stores in Michigan, um, we didn't plan to do it in the middle of COVID, but we were out there in February. We, meaning the team, was out there setting up four stores that I had scouted back in um, uh, late 2019. We opened up those four stores. And, and just help me understand, because... So your people are familiar with the product, and the product has a uh, sea sh- coastal. Coastal, thank you. Yes. Feel. Yes. And Michigan is not coastal. Oh, well, I yeah. Can, no, no, no. <laughs> there is more sailing done on the Great Lakes than either the East Coast and the West Coast combined. There's more active yacht clubs. There's more active racing. So it is. People don't know that, but. I know. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. And so and that really, so right. that really inspired you. It was well, and if and the towns that 
where we're in that border, Lake Michigan, right. yeah. they they look like little beachfront towns. Yes. So yes. It, it's perfect there. Yeah, and, I'm teasing you a little. I just yeah. wanted you to oh, yeah. say yeah. that yeah, for yeah, the yeah. air. Yeah. And then um, again, we saw internet orders from that whole right. Great Lakes area and all the states that vacation on those Great Lakes all of a sudden started to surge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting because I hadn't spent much time out there other than going into Detroit a few times. Um, so when I was out scouting and driving along the, the Great Lake, yeah. and, uh, it felt like I was in Maine. It was Traverse November. City, Grand yeah. Rapids. Yeah. That's where it, it was yeah, November. Right. It was cold. There was snow. It was gray. There were white caps on the lake. Yeah. I could have sworn I was on the coast of Maine. Yes. And it felt like it. And the communities were very welcoming and charming. And it's like, these are great locations. So fast forward six months later, we open these stores uh, as Fran mentioned, we start looking at internet sales. Prior to those stores being open, Michigan was in the middle of the pack, yeah. about number 24, 25. Um, with, by the end of that year, they had approached the top 10. Wow. Not only that, the surrounding states and Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, had Wisconsin had all risen. And it was, it's hard to say cause effect, but it's more than anecdotal yes. that, um, you know, we had that brand exposure. People became aware of the company, and they, they not only bought maybe in those stores, but they went home and they ordered online. So now when I go to a sea bag store, I can buy sea bags, but I can also buy some other products. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when, when we bought the company, they were selling a few little jewelry items yep. and things handmade in New England. And part of our original business plan was to expand what we call third-party brands. Um, but with a very specific strategy, never for it to be more than 20% of our assortment, and items that were made in New England, preferably made in Maine. If they had a sustainability story, even more, even better. And we did that as from an assortment strategy to have some lower price point add-on impulse items. Yes. Because the $175 tote bag is really considered purchase for most people. So we wanted something that even if the person wasn't ready to commit to a bag on that visit to our store, there was some handmade jewelry or a candle made in Maine in that $20, $25 price point. So there's a very specific strategy with that. It's to build our average transaction value. It's to have an impulse item. Um, a starter item, if you will, and just to sort of ground out that coastal nautical lifestyle vision that we have for the brand. And what about now? It's, it's been very successful. Strategy. Yeah, we've continued to expand that um, very successfully. One of the things that I, I, I really um, love about it is not only is it great for the customers and for us, but we're helping a lot of other small companies. There are companies that we started with that we were a small vendor, or a small customer rather, where we're, we're now their largest customer. One of my favorite stories is as a, a company that makes the lobster rope maps. Um, and we're, um, we were in their top five and now we're, we're vying for number one. But one of the other products we buy for them, we buy a number of other things. They make a keychain that they whip. They're very colorful. They kind of like penny candy at the cash register. Sure. And we were buying a few for the stores, but now with our scale, it was a number of years ago, I was talking to the sales guy, and he was telling me, they're up in Walderboro, Maine, right? Little tiny community. He said, you're buying so many of these things now. I had to hire somebody full-time just to make keychains for you, which is great, right? And we have a lot of those stories where 
You know, it's not just the 233 employees that we have this week on the payroll, but it's all the other people and companies that we support through our purchases um, and uh, and through some of the contract labor that we do. Um, and that's part of the impact that I think the companies had beyond, you know, our footprint. And we've worked with a lot of Maine artists and put their designs on our bags. So that's been right. an important part of our strategy. I also think our, our long-term vision, which we're now starting to realize with third-party brands or even made-to-order, you know, I would say special makeup that we do with um, other vendors, is to take our library of very beautiful designs that we own. We are blessed to have a very talented internal design team. Um, and those designs will lend themselves to other things than just bags. So we're, we're testing T-shirts right now and caps and candles with our logo or our designs on it because they are beautiful nautical designs and I've always felt that and we all know so let's leverage those designs on on other surfaces than just a sea bag. How have you um, been had so much courage to continue on your highest high maybe highest quality and I would say relatively high price strategy because you, you must feel lots of um, coaching and counseling and advice and even pressure to continue to build volume by people simplistically thinking, why don't you just reduce price? Why don't you make these bags less expensively mm-hmm. and you'll sell more of them? How have you had the courage to continue on your very high-quality, high-price strategy? Well, I think it goes to a couple of things. One, it's, it's not who we want to be and it's not who we are. So I think it starts there. And then the other part in terms of why wouldn't we reduce price is because up in, with the exception of 2020 when the world shut down and all our stores shut down, we've always had our biggest problem is when we've been constrained by our capacity, by our ability to produce. Right. So why would we sell for less if we can sell everything we can make at the price that and we And I, I would get? answer it. I agree with that, and I would answer it another way yeah. is one – of the two most frequently asked questions when we were making the pitch was what happens if somebody knocks you off in China? And I said, well, to me, that's not an if, it's a when. And I would always give the example of thinking about some of the most iconic products that L.L. Bean has, the canvas boat and tote and the bean boot, both of which are made in Maine, in Brunswick. Um, When you are the original and the first and the authentic one, you can command the price, and other people could knock you off and did knock us off continually at L.L. Bean and those two products. And the more they knocked us off, the more the sales of the original went up. Yes. So I I rest my case. Yes. You know, um, Marissa Lister, who was here this morning, and I were just doing some writing on this concept, Fran, which is, uh, you know, we all know the concept of a zero-sum game, a win-lose game. Mm -hmm. And we also know the concept of a win-win game. But we've been thinking about the concepts which we see in businesses like yours and other friends of ours who have what we call an exponential sum game. What we mean by that is some of them actually welcome competition in their segment to be able to say, hey, I heard a woman the other day who's got a very technical product, and I said to her, are you concerned about people kind of moving in down the street doing the same thing? She said, bring it on, because we're in a segment that we would appreciate more recognition worldwide mm-hmm. in the segment, mm-hmm. and we're going to have a piece of that segment, and she happens to have the same piece you do, the high-quality, high-price part of it. 
I remember very early in my career, we have a multi-time user client, uh, Ted Hood, the sailor, mm -hmm. who had uh, invented a number of very creative things for sailing vessels, one of which was called the stowaway sail, which rolled up the mainsail into the, into the uh, mast. And I remember saying to Ted, at you know, I was probably 23, and he was probably 53, uh, saying to him one day, geez, Ted, you know, it would really enhance the value of the business if you patented that. He said, we're not going to patent it. So being young and innocent, I thought maybe I didn't describe it correctly. So I said, gee, it would really enhance the value of the business if you patented that. And he said, very in annoyance, we're not going to patent it because I believe that everyone should sail with the sales that do this. I think it's safer. I think it's better. And I think if people want to knock us off and do it, it's great. And by the way, Peter, it's not that easy to do. And so I just really appreciate that. And you say, well, bring it on. There's, there's this room. And maybe you have some competitors who are in the other end of the of the process. Oh, you see them out there, yeah. And and we've had we've had some, and but our customers know the difference. They know the difference between a cheap knockoff. They can tell a bag that has that kind of structure, the quality, the two panels, the, heft. the continuous rope, yeah. the the design yeah. that Fran mentioned that we continue to elevate. Um, so yeah, and early on in particular, we saw more of that. And um, most of those companies, some have gone away. Um, and some are still tiny, and, and we're 10 times the size we were. So it, I would say in the first couple of years, they were a little bit more of a nuisance in yep. some ways. Yep. And now story. it's like they're just not even on the radar. But, you know, it's the HBS case. He who gets scale first yeah. wins. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and we just hit the scale out of the park, and they stay teeny tiny. Yeah. So I think. Most of them that we used to track when we wrote the original business plan aren't, aren't around anymore. No, when we updated the competitive matrix um, for that project yes. last year, it was like, oh my gosh. Look, <laughs> but, my but I think we on the design team think about our competitors in a broader sense because it really is any beautiful, you know, medium to high end tote bag, you know, leather yes. or yeah. sure or you know. Um, I guess one of my favorite stories to that end is when we got a corporate order last summer. I think we might have told you this already, Pete, um, for, from the corporate headquarters of LVMH for um, they wanted to give 50 of our tote bags personalized with the initials of, to 50 of their executives uh, at Louis Vuitton. So <laughs> Louis Vuitton was giving away giving C bags I love that. as a thank you gift. So I think that's when we sort of knew we made it in the luxury goods area. <laughs> So, so when the two of you, what year was it when you were writing the original business plan? Uh, 2013. Right. So in 2013, almost 10 years ago, when the two of you were, were doing that, Fran, what was your dream about what the business could become? A coastal lifestyle brand because there isn't any, there aren't any out there and there still aren't any out there. So if you go to any coastal town up and down, you know, let's just say the Atlantic coast, there's typically one or two stores that have sort of an assortment of clothing that's coastal inspired or nautical and home goods and gifts, but there's not a national chain or even a regional chain doing that. So I always thought there was mm -hmm. an opportunity for us to have a chain that was doing that. I, mean, I hate to use the word chain right. because but, it sounds and, corporate. But. And did you ever, and did you in your mind think, and you know, maybe if we're really successful and lucky, we might have 25 stores? Yeah, we, I kind of thought we'd get it to 25 and then kind of pause and, 
then it just it just he kept signing leases. <laughs> <laughs> he kept signing leases. <laughs> And Don, what about you? Did you did you when you, did you have a destination in mind that you secretly you didn't tell anybody, but you thought if we could get this because, you know, at one point you said I thought this might be a three day a week job. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. No, I underestimated the amount there was to do, and um, and probably how invested I would become. Right. So I think my three day a week was not was more about my feeling that I had other interesting things I wanted to spend time on. Yes. And this quickly became the one thing. And so I put all my energies into this. Um, no, it's it wasn't... But did you have a number? Yeah, it wasn't about a destination. I mean, in our old pro forma, I think at one point in whatever year, seven or something, we said, yeah, we might get to 50 stores or 70 stores. But it was just, it was so hypothetical. We were so wrong on so many of our assumptions. Yeah. And part of it was because we had so little data to work with. And so we were making assumptions on top of assumptions, not assumptions on top of data, but assumptions on top of assumptions because the data that we had, in hindsight, um, we found out later, was much of it was wrong. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a leap of faith. But the idea that we could grow this to $20 million, $50 million was always the idea. Mm. And, and one of the motivating factors for us, and I touched on this really early, was about growing a business growing jobs, providing careers in Maine. That was a huge part. That was, I know for me, one of the important parts and one of the things that we pitched to Fran, uh, I'm sorry, that Fran and I pitched to investors was that fact that we wanted to provide careers and while there were some benefits when we started, that one of the commitments we made, and this was important to Beth as well, was that we made, and we put dollars on it for the first few years, that every single year we're gonna enhance the benefits. And in the first year when I came, the first thing we added, I happened to be on the board of a dental insurance company, we added dental insurance. And it was 100% paid dental insurance for all employees. I only got 14 takers. And and part of the reason was because some of our population and, and some of our frontline workers, it's a large immigrant population, they'd never had dental care, let yeah. alone dental insurance. They weren't quite sure if they even wanted it. So we had to do some education, some communication. So the the... Um, one of the satisfying parts of this is we've had people that have now worked with us for seven or eight years who started out either mid-career and have advanced or in the beginning of their career are now managers and now running things. We have 10-year employees. Um, we have, as I mentioned, hundreds of people working for us that we have a very competitive benefit package. We are much closer to market in our pay than we ever were before. So that part, and in terms of the giving back and having grown up in Maine and having left here after school to go to work, to make money, then eventually move back, um, in our small way, the fact that we're contributing to people being able to stay in Maine, have careers in Maine, uh, that's one of the most satisfying parts of this. So it's more about that than it is a number. Having said that, it's way more fun when you're growing a company than it is if you're stagnant or you're shrinking. It's way more fun to raise prices than it is to cut prices. It's more fun to add costs than it is to cut costs. Um, so, yeah, there's not a destination per se. It's more about, you know, it sounds a little little trite, but it's more about the journey uh, for me. Leon Gorman used to always say, things go better with growth. Yeah. <laughs> All things. Yes, Right. <laughs> So the two of you started on this, you embarked on this journey in 2013. You've been partners in a way in these different domains that you've described very clearly. It's awesome. 
many people listening to this also have partners in their businesses. Fran, in what ways might Don be tricky to work with? I don't think he is tricky to work with, or I wouldn't be working with him. Um, I maybe, maybe tricky is the wrong word. What, what way is he challenging to work with? easy to work with. I think we start with trust and transparency. Uh, if you don't have those two things, it's you can't work with I can't work with anybody. Right. So it started with trust and transparency that was built on our many days together LL Bean. Right. And so you had this foundation. A, a critical foundation. Yes. And a mutual respect for each other's skills. Yeah. I mean, he's good at the stuff I'm not good at, and I'm good at the stuff he's not good at. So it works. It's like a marriage, honestly, but yep. we, don't, we don't fight. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we um, I guess because we spend so much time together at work, at play, skiing, or whatever it might be, hiking, we, we kind of get each other's. I think we, mm-hmm. we know how each other thinks. We can kind of answer each other's questions, you know, we, it, it's not tricky to work with each other. I don't think. Do you think mm-hmm. it's tricky to work with? Well, Donnie, you're going to get friends asking you my next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I would, I would agree and echo everything that Fran said. Fran um, doesn't have any challenging parts to work with. Well, of course, I do. <laughs> you see, I think that we've really learned to work with each other over the years, and I think the most important part is that. The communication, as Fran said, is the key. And and that's probably true of anything, but I probably learned that best from Fran is just the importance and the value of communication. And and you know, we talk about the uh, the chairlift experience. Yeah. So there's a difference in how we work together in the winter versus off season. Yeah. And I it took me a while to recognize that yeah. and become more aware. So we are like lockstep in sync all winter because there's so much talk and communication all the time about every aspect of the business. And then spring comes and Fran travels and I do other things and then we see each other occasionally. We we make it a case to, you know, have regular lunches and touch base, but there's not as much constant communication. So I had to, you know, remind myself that I need to make sure that I keep up that flow of communication. And that was uh, one learning. And then the other thing I would say is, in terms of going way back in our, in our history and relationship, because when we first worked together, um, we both worked at Bean, but we weren't working closely together. When we first started working closely together, I mean, I can remember the time when both of us, and, and certainly I'll speak for myself, really said, you know, for, the, for us to work together, we have to invest in the relationship. And and that's not something that I typically lead with, um, but that in, in life you mean um, at work at work right. yeah yeah um, you know for me I lead with the work um, I know others who you know we've had they lead first with the relationship and in this point I made a conscious decision and Fran and I traveled to a photo shoot in um, in Napa which is not a bad place to travel um, where you know she had lived and I'd done photo shoots before and we spent days together. And that was long probably the days. first time that we spent these long days together working, getting to know each other, um, talking, you know, during the day, traveling together. Um, um, you know, funny stories. I ended up with pink eye that I got from my daughter, and I couldn't drive, and so Fran had to drive. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of 
if I think about our time together, that yeah. was when the relationship part of the work really started. Yeah. Um, and I can't even tell you what year that was, but it was probably t- 2005 or 2004. So it's close to 20 years. Yeah. Right. Um, and and from there, it's just continued to grow, um, both outside of work and then through work, and then with sea bags, it's just become constant. I mean, I will tend, I think, to be more emotional than you. He's much better at staying calm and cool and collected, and I will kind of, I can get a little emotional or fly off the handle, so he pulls me back in, but... I like people that are emotional. I, I think I have a bunch not. of those in my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> it helps me, too. And Don is a natural introvert, and I am a natural extrovert, and so that is kind of another way we, we balance off one another. So when you formed the business, uh, I don't know this, but it looks to me like you very uh, intentionally also put together a board of directors, pr- probably from the stockholders. Are they are they exclusively from stockholders? Initially they were. Yeah. And then we brought in independents a number of years ago. Okay. Uh, we've had a couple of the original um, investor board members um, step out over yep. the course of the years, um, which has been natural and, and productive. Um, so, and then we have... Uh, the three of us, Fran and Chris Pusade, who was one of our original investors, original board members, have been the core of the board. Um, and uh, and Beth, who part of our agreement with Beth was in buying the company that she would stay on and then she would be part of the board. Okay. So the four of us. Okay, I mentioned, I mentioned this because I think a lot of um, really successful entrepreneurs, for, candidly, don't get that right. They don't either they don't have a board at all mm. or they have an advisory board that doesn't meet hardly ever yeah. make a half-hearted attempt. You've probably seen some of those. You may even have been involved with some of those. Right. I don't know. I, I have. Yeah. Uh, and so you've done it really uh, superbly well, it seems to me, from an outsider. Uh, yeah. is, is, is that because it was contributing value and working for you? Yes. And, I mean, I, at, you know, at the time was sitting on a number of corporate boards, both public and private, so learned a lot about corporate board governance. Yes. And we felt like um, there was no reason, as small as we are, not not to run it as if we were, you know, a, a, a proper company, a public company with good governance. Right. And it always, I always wonder, Pete, honestly, why more small businesses right. don't see the value of this. And what do you see as the value of that? A, inquiry and dialogue on ideas right. that we have. I mean, we're, we're not always right. going to be right. right. And so, you know, the board has been helpful in saying, wait a minute, slow down on this or go faster on that or have you thought about doing it this way? Um, and it's great to have other points of view and they come from other walks of life. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, and you get that diversity of opinion and diversity of thought and we all know that you have more brains working on a problem, you're probably going to come to a better solution. So I, it just baffles me why more small businesses don't do that because it doesn't cost anything. We we paid our board members initially, I mean, a few shares of stock. Yes. Um, that was it. And their travel expenses. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, we, we pay a very modest meeting uh, fee stipend. Yeah. But I always look at all the small businesses I know of in Maine and say, I'd step up to be on any of their boards for 
little or no money, just because I enjoy the experience, I have a lot of advice to give, and you feel yeah. the same way. Yeah. And it just baffles me why more businesses don't do it. Yeah, yeah. And and I agree. I mean, just good practice, good governance. I mean, we this was not a hobby. This was not, you know, a sideline. And I, I, back to the investor side, yeah, we took people's money. Yeah. And so we really needed to be disciplined. And, and the board, the board cadence, um, the, the council that we have, all of that, I think, gives the investors confidence and it gives us a lot of surety that we're doing things the right way. And, and sometimes it slows things down. Sometimes it's like, oh, yep, I got to run this by the board or I want the board's opinion on this or, oh, we need to make sure the, the council will say, well, you need to get a board vote on this. So yep. there are times, but the, the perspective is valuable. The experience is valuable. Um, and, you know, sometimes the board needs to hold me back. Other times the board needs to push me. Yeah. So, you know, the best advice I ever got from the board, I've, I've said this before, um, and I've said it with Bill in the room, was uh, the board really pushed me to hire a CFO. Yeah. yeah he and wanted to do that and the CEO role. Yeah. And we're, no. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, well, I'm not ready yet. So I delayed. And then I said, well, maybe I hire a controller. Yeah. Right? I don't want no. a CFO yet. Right. And part of that was just my frugality and I wanted to be cheap and I'm trying to and manage expenses. And you liked the numbers. And yeah. I, I was... But I was managing on Excel, right? Yeah. And we had six stores, so yeah. you know I could do twelve. But um, <laughs> in in hindsight, and and I wasn't that I, I, I didn't think we were ready yet, and I didn't think we needed it yet. Um, but I'm very quick to admit that they were right, and I'm glad we did, and it was one of the best decisions we made. And left to my own devices, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, you're the ones who said it a minute ago. You said, hey, this isn't a hobby. We're trying to treat this like it's a real business. Yeah. Why not treat it like it's a, right. like a really big, right. successful business? But there's another example. Yeah. When you do that, you actually hire that talent yes. That yes. Who, for what you want to become, right. not for right. what you used to That's be. That's a great point. And Fran uh, kind of hit on that, which is we've always had that attitude from the very beginning. Yeah. We didn't act like a 20-person company or a $2 million company when we started. We said, we're going to make decisions like we're 5 million. When we were 5, we said, we're going to make decisions like we're 10. Yeah. When we're 10, we said, we're going to make decisions like we're 20. When we hit 20, we're going to act like we're 50. Yeah. So that we're trying to be who we want to become, yeah. not who we are, not rear view mirror. And do you do you ever have the, the, the senior managers who work with you, do you ever have them come to the board meetings All or report time. to the board meetings? All the time. And so, so there's another area, and I'm saying this for, for the people who are listening to the podcast, that I see that is black and white, where when you have senior managers who are accustomed to presenting their own domain to an outside group of board members, those managers grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they get accustomed to not just reporting to the two of you and giving you the same BS answers or the questions you ask them, but they have a whole new group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And not only that, they get accustomed to, if there's more than one manager presenting, to actually speaking about the whole company not just their domain. So just a fabulous way for to get well, managers to grow. Well, it's a win-win, Pete, because it, it benefits the board, too. They get to see the depth and breadth of talent we have in the company, yeah. which is not small. Yeah. And they get to hear firsthand with sometimes maybe more detail or more passion than Don and I might have about a particular topic. So our VP of stores will come to present his real estate strategy for the next year, or my head of merchandising will come to present the spring line for next year. And 
it's good for the board, too. And yes, it's great for the managers. It's huge development for them. But I see it as a win and we both see it as a win win. Yeah, and I like it because I don't have to do all the talking <laughs> at a board meeting. Sure. And it, it really it's it's also gratifying yeah. to be able to see our senior team um, present and to talk and to you know impress the board and to get the board feedback um, and and for the board to really recognize the value of that team too and and I would say on that the board had has encouraged that and asked for that too because in the early days no it was a I mean, it was a one-man show. Right. I would come and I would present everything. I'd run the audit, run the comp, run this. Yeah. Um, and the, some of the best meetings are when all I have to do is run the meeting, and I put together the calendar yeah. and the schedule and the agenda with Fran, and then people come in and they present, and everybody says, "Wow, what a great team!" So people listening to this might hear a story, which sounds like to, you know the two of you got together and um, raised money and bought the company from Beth and. You were at two stores, and now you're at 50 stores, and everything's been a great success all the way. It's been ice cream and cake. No. Are there? Would you be willing to share some some places yeah. that you feel like you may have stubbed your toe, or that were some, you know, slowdowns, or maybe even failures that you were that felt were learning experiences? Sure. Oh yeah. We, we made an acquisition a number of years ago that we thought was synergistic and accretive at the top line and bottom line. And for many reasons, it it was not. And we di- we successfully divested it, so it didn't do the company any harm. I think it was one of the times when the board said, are you sure you want to do this, Don, because we're afraid it's going to be a distraction to you and Beth. And I think you know their position was, no, it's not going to be a distraction. We're, we're sure we can do it. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a distraction. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it was a yeah. good learning. It did the company no damage in the long run, but that was one that we stubbed our toe on. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I'd say little things, um, but not not real big. You know, where we've made. I'm having a hard time even coming up with an example well, because I mean, because we're great. so quick to adjust. And yeah. and one of the things that I try to remind people about that sometimes come in from the outside from bigger companies is they'll see the things, the imperfections. And and what I and, and sometimes that can influence the people that are there. And and so what I'll say is, you know, you're right. We don't do that as well as we could. Um, but remember how we did it a couple months ago and is it better? Remember what it looked like six months ago? Remember what it was last year and everyone's like, wow. So We've we've improved so much, and it's not in a straight line. And there are times where we've had growing pains, and times where we've made mistakes. Um, you know, this uh, warehouse that we bought, we were moving a lot of our manufacturing. The number of times where we've had a piece of equipment show up that was spec that was supposed to do X and it didn't do X. Yeah, that's where you know I'd say I've stubbed my toe a few times where I've trusted somebody to make a decision that didn't make a good decision or I believe something that wasn't great. We've had technology projects that haven't gone smoothly. We're not the first ones that it wasn't delivered on time or on budget. So those things happen, but that's just part of the process, I'd say. Um, and where we've you know, made mistakes, we've never really bet the business. We've never bet the farm. I mean, 2020, there were some big decisions that we made that um, mostly seemed to pan out. But not everything's been perfect. Some of the stores we've opened, we've closed a few stores. Yeah, we've had a mall, mall location yeah, that worked you know, for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we went into it with the idea that we're trying to learn. We're still experimenting. We're still um, 
refining as we got bigger and bigger. We went from 20 stores to 30 stores. But in the early days, we were we were you know, taking calculated but low risk, and that and therefore uh, we were off the beaten track. Or when we went into the malls, we said, "Yeah, this will work," and then we saw oh my gosh, we have to be open 80 hours a week and the expense is going to crush the top line. Sales are fine, but expenses aren't fine. Yeah. So we've had a few things that we've corrected, um, but there are minor course corrections. You did say something also which I want to re, I want to double click on, which is genius insight, Don. We know many, many, many successful entrepreneur owner managers, but many of them um, would say that they are not reaching their goals because they set their goals looking in front of them and when they measure how close they are to their goals they measure it looking in front of them too and there's always more goals to achieve but what you said was that you were willing to set your goals looking in front of you but measure your progress looking at where you came from and I just want to just mention that to people who are listening that like, that's for entrepreneurs that is Huge to be able to set your goals looking forward, but always measuring how are we doing, you know, in 2013 when we get started. How are we doing in 2015? How are we doing in 2018? How are we doing during the quarantine 2020? And here we are now, which just gives you the um, fuel yes. to be able to go forward and keep, yeah, can you look absolutely. at those new goals? Absolutely, that's great. Yeah, and and the satisfaction of that achievement, that accomplishment that people should share in, and the motivation that it doesn't matter what. The problems are, or the opportunities are. You know, just just say yes. So you see that we're not doing this as well as we could, or there's, you know, this is imperfect. Then that's great because be a part of improving it. And uh, and most people like that, and most people can get excited about it. But if someone's always going to be pointing out your flaws, or always point out your deficiencies, or always tell you why you can't do something, then they need to get out of the way, or they need to go do something else. And it's like one of the first meetings I had um, at the company and was talking about change, and people now know it. But for the first few years, my primary message to the staff was, there will be change. There will be more change. Don't get used to the way things are because it's going to change. If you like it, don't get too comfortable because it's going to change. If you don't like it, don't worry because it's going to change. (laughs) Um, And I haven't had to say that anymore because people understand that. That is the reality. And some people self-selected. We had one person who was who was at the company that used to work and knew Fran and I had been, um, who went there for a nice quiet semi-retirement. And um, once we showed up, she said, "I know what you guys are going to do. I am out. This is not what I signed up for." Cool. Right? Which is fine. Yeah. You know, if, and because it's not for everybody. Um, and you mentioned that earlier, the difference between working in a larger company versus yeah. working as an owner operator. It's very, very different. different. World. Yeah. And and some people, you know, they think they want to do it. Yeah. But the reality is very different. Yeah. You know, there's nobody that comes and empties your garbage at night. Yeah. There's no one that makes your appointments for you. You know, there's you no one to call in sick to. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, you don't want to spend the money to have somebody come do that. So here's my last question. Um, Let's pretend we go to sleep tonight, and tomorrow we wake up, and magically it's July 16th, 2025. You go into sea bags, and you're incredibly proud of what you see. And as you look at it, and you, we have coffee together, and you two say, Pete, do you remember that day back a few years ago we did that podcast interview? Yeah. And you say, you'll never believe the things that have changed since then. 
what are they? So I'm not asking you to predict the future. Right. We're in the future. Yep. I'm asking you to tell me what happened. Yep. Yep. I guess I'm, ha- I'm going to answer with my merchant hat on because it's hard for me to take it off. I really want hope. I, what I would say is, Pete, remember when we talked about becoming a coastal lifestyle brand? Yes. And expanding into apparel and other adjacent gift categories? We've done it. And you walk into a store now, and our beautiful proprietary designs are on T-shirts and coffee mugs and scarves and all kinds, all manner of product, and it just enhances our whole store. Yep, the main draw is always going to be our tote bag and other bags made of recycled sales, but the rest of the assortment has really fleshed out to be the one, the first and only truly, you know, specialty store chain of coastal accessories. So that's the front of the house, and (laughs) and it looks great, and we're so proud of it, and our flagship is still the pinnacle that we opened in in 2020. It looks beautiful. It looks even better with the 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 flagship on Commercial Street in Portland. Yeah, Yeah. and that was a huge breakout for us. Um, We've done more of that. You know, the chain is bigger. We have more stores, Um, and, and at the same time, the back of the house has been upgraded. So that's where we've we've always been playing catch up. And um, and so one of the areas we've been investing more and more in the last few years is in our manufacturing. And it's great that the product's handmade, but every step doesn't have to be by hand. And so <laughs> we've invested in some technology. We've streamlined our workflows to some degree, but we are a bigger version of what we used to be with more equipment and more expense um, that still, well, in the future when we're in 2025, we're looking back saying, remember when you came on that tour in 2022 and you saw and how things were laid out? Wow, it's this is the same building? It's so much more streamlined now and look at the way that people work together and look at the equipment and utilization and look at how you handle the sales and Rather than piles and piles of sales, you have work in process and you have inventory. And, oh, my gosh, look at all the finished goods you have so that when somebody orders, they don't have to wait for eight days. It's great that everyone's unique and they're made by hand, but do you really need to make them one at a time? Um, And do we really have to wait? And the store looks beautiful, but why can't it have all the product that they want? So that's where we're going to be when we're looking back to this time, when we're in 2025, that we're going to have solved most of those problems. We'll have newer problems um, to solve, but at that point, we're going to have that solved. Well, I can't wait to see the sea bags of 2025, and I'm highly confident the two of you and your team is going to pull it off. Um, If people are interested in um, learning more about sea bags or even buying a sea bag or buying other uh, products from you, what should they do? <laughs> yeah, they should. They can absolutely explore the website where they can learn a lot more about the company and the history and some of the work that we do, and um, obviously our entire product assortment. Or if they're located on either coast or in the Midwest um, or on vacation in most beautiful places in the country on the East Coast and many in the Midwest, um, stop into a store. That's fabulous. I want to thank both of you for spending so much time today. This yeah. is a great story. I really appreciate it. No, you made it easy. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. 
We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com.